From WXXI News, I'm Jasmine Singer sitting in for Evan Dawson, and this is Connections. Our connection this hour was made in an instant. Deshane Levere was driving her stepdaughters and another passenger home after a family party. It was 3 a.m. in August 2014, and Levere, who was the group's designated driver, was eager to get to bed. While she was stopped at a red light, she counted three blocks to her house. When the light turned green, she pressed on the gas. Just moments later, a car slammed into her vehicle, sending it careening to the side of the road. Lavere felt a searing pain in her neck and spine, and it's a pain that has become part of her daily life. The car that hit Lavere's sedan had run a red light, and it was a police car. The officer driving it had not turned on the car's lights nor the siren. Deshane Lavere lives in Syracuse, and that crash was one of hundreds that involved Syracuse law enforcement vehicles between 2013 and 2022. But that's just in one city. The frequency and impact of police crashes in New York State is the subject of an investigation by the USA Today Network New York and Syracuse University. The reporting shows that the issue in Syracuse is reflected across the state. While everyday driving errors by officers are to blame in many cases, federal research also indicates that officers view assertive driving as a necessary risk of the job. That can lead to questions about what kind of driving training officers are receiving, how crashes can be prevented, and how officers are being held accountable when they do hit civilian vehicles. The USA Today investigation also shows that despite the number or or severity of crashes, in many cases, officers faced little or no discipline. Meanwhile, civilian victims ran into barriers while seeking justice. Levere, for instance, lost her court battle and the officer involved in the crash did not face any consequences. Levere told USA Today, quote, It's like police can do whatever they want and get away with it, and I'm still here picking up the pieces, end quote. This hour, we're joined by two of the journalists behind this investigation. They'll discuss their work, what they learned, what they're seeing in Rochester and Monroe County, and what law enforcement departments and other entities can do to mitigate this issue. I'd like to welcome my guests, David Robinson, investigative reporter for the USA Today Network, New York. Welcome, David. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And Beryl Lipton, Police Discipline Data Coordinator for the USA Today Network, New York. Thank you so much for being here, Beryl. Thank you for having us on. Listeners, just so you know, we'll link to their reporting on our podcast page so you can check out the data for yourself. Let's start with this. How did this issue come onto your radar in the first place? David, let's go to you. Sure. So, so really, uh, this investigation has been years in the making. Uh, it really traces back to the repeal of the 50A uh, section of the uh, state civil rights law. And, and, and in a nutshell, that really refers to kind of protections that were in place that kept police discipline and misconduct records uh, um, really uh, shrouded in secrecy for, for decades. And, and it, it made it so that you couldn't get those records publicly and they couldn't be publicly disclosed. And um, when that was repealed, uh, that got the the ball moving to to really go after the the information that is crucial for this type of reporting the the, the public records the documents the data mm-hmm. that we used 
to look into police crashes. And, and, and really that all involved uh, um, filing hundreds of police um, public records requests that, uh, that Barrel uh, spearheaded and, uh, and, and, and a lot of different um, team members really participated in this. But uh, it really traces back to that repeal of the, um, the 50A uh, statute. And, and once that was opened up, uh, you know, years of public records requests came together and culminated in, in these types of findings that we're finding here in, in Syracuse and in other cities as we, as we pry more information loose around uh, police discipline mis- misconduct and really coupling that with other records that we delved into as far as the, the police uh, garage records and all the other information that goes into this type of reporting. So, so really, it's a years-long process, uh, this type of investigation, uh, bringing in, uh, you know, dozens of team members from across USA Today Network and Syracuse University and, and others that, uh, that really uh, produced this reporting. And, and, and it is ongoing as we kind of continue to fight for more public records, uh, to continue to push police departments to, to give more information that's crucial to, uh, to, to keeping uh, the public informed as far as the, the risks out there as far as unsafe driving practices, uh, the lack of discipline that officers face, and, and really uh, some of those barriers to justice that you referenced for people who are, are uh, unfortunately uh, impacted by this. And there's a lot that you just mentioned that I want to get into, but Beryl, let's turn to you. How did this issue come onto your radar? Yeah, so this was really born out of the repeal of Section 50A, and that happened in June 2020. And what it did was really gave the public more explicit access to police disciplinary records and the records that are used to make judgments in personnel decisions involving law enforcement officers. And at that time, um, USA Today Network, Muckrock, um, a lot of other news organizations were very interested in these materials, one, because they had never been accessed before. So there was a lot that could provide context into sort of how discipline of all sorts has been uh, given out to police officers in New York State. And also because there was a concern after the repeal that some of these materials would be, frankly, destroyed and we wouldn't be able to then analyze them for some of the trends that we know exist in police officer behavior and and discipline. So um, as David uh, David mentioned, we submitted uh, freedom of information law requests to uh, almost every law enforcement agency in New York State. And these were for records related to all kinds of discipline. Um, and, and as we were sort of going through the materials that ultimately we have been able to get back and, and the process of getting those records is sort of a whole tangent in itself. But as we were able to get records, specifically from Syracuse University, uh, who, uh, from Syracuse, um, where the university had teamed up with us, um, we teamed up with Professor Jody Upton's class to start going through these disciplinary materials and understanding the content of the discipline that was handed out. And students and, um, you know, it was really students who sort of noticed there are an awful lot of car crashes in here. Um, What is going on? And we also had some interns who were working on the project and sort of simultaneously they were noticing issues maybe with overtime and and we're just sort of encountering a lot of questions about how officers were um, handling their vehicles because it seemed to be uh, causing some trouble. And so that was sort of uh, what we decided to drill down on in terms of the type of discipline and the type of action that was happening in the community. Um, And I would like to say, right, like this is um, an investigation that for the time being is focused on Syracuse, but is a statewide investigation. And 
Syracuse has provided us with materials that we are able to look at and actually analyze and create questions about and have conversations around. And I think that that is really, you know, uh, it's important to sort of highlight that Syracuse Police Department was in, in some ways ultimately transparent about this. And we we're able to have this conversation to begin with because of that transparency. And that's really going to be important across the state um, when it comes to all police departments and how they respond to freedom of information law requests and actually comply with that law. Well, I'm curious about why the investigative piece, why is it important to address the issue? David, do you want to talk a little bit about that and perhaps touch on some of the the key takeaways? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, in your introduction there, I mean, the people who were impacted by this directly, like DeShane LeVere and like Charles McLaughlin, who was featured in the story, you know, it's it's important to to spotlight uh, their experiences because until you uh, encounter something like this, until a, a cop car hits you uh, uh, and it's running a red light and violating the rules of the road or whatever, whatever it may be, uh, you know, you're not going to understand what, what it takes to go through this, what, how it changes your life, you know, how, how you have to try and seek justice against a, a system that, that uh, as Shane described it, seems to be designed to protect the, the law enforcement agencies, the police officers, and, uh, and, and the municipalities, um, as opposed to uh, the, the civilians who were injured in these crashes. So I think that's that's a starting point is, is the human toll of this. But there's also the societal toll. There's there's the impact on taxpayers when when you're talking about, uh, um, you know, talking about hundreds of crashes over a decade that we looked at just in Syracuse. And there's hundreds more in, in pretty much every other community across the state. You know, when you start talking about the cost to repair and up and maintain these vehicles, the costs of injuries to the police officers themselves, who, who you know, we've also uncovered uh, don't receive, you know, the, the adequate training, uh, driver training that they should. When you look at the national standards, when you look at kind of expert insights and, and you know, people who, who, are, who are involved in trying to make sure that they have better decision making when it comes to emergency response and, and all the urgency that goes into that. So I think, you know, there's so many different aspects that come into this issue that are crucial for the public to understand, you know, from, from civilians who, who might be involved in crashes, how they can try and seek justice, what they're going to be facing in courts. You know, what, what we, we looked into the actual legal standards that are applied to this and how police are protected with broad immunity when it comes to emergency responses and how that uh, how that kind of unfolds in court when you're a civilian trying to uh, uncover that. And, and also, <clears throat> to be clear, there, there's issues of conflict of interest when you talk about the investigations of these crashes, when you look at police investigating, investigating themselves in most cases, and a lot of, a lot of the uh, court cases that we dug into raise a lot of serious questions around flaws in investigations, around missing, um, you know, missing evidence, around uh, inadequate... Uh, um, interviewing of, you know, witnesses, all, all of that goes into it. So I think there's so many different things that are important for the public to understand when it comes to uh, police crashes and when it comes to the, di- the disciplinary aspect of this. You know, when we, when we as, as Beryl pointed out, we were able to have the conversations with the Syracuse Police Department and we interviewed the chief and they, they, they sat down for that conversation with us and they talked about the actions that they're already taking to try and address this. As we were asking these questions, they imposed their first, uh, their first, kind of discipline that went beyond the union contract that was involved that limited the ability that uh, they were able to uh, discipline officers who had maybe a lot of crashes on their track record Mm. and uh, they kept them behind the wheel. And, uh, you know, they said they're starting to pursue more strict uh, discipline to try and address these crashes. So I think, uh, you know, really the work is just the real, the work is really ongoing and and it's going to be an ongoing conversation that uh, pulls in, you know, everything from the local uh, police department decision making, the budgeting that goes into it from the uh, municipal leaders, 
all the way up to, to kind of state lawmakers and what goes into the actual statutes that are involved when uh, civilians try and uh, seek justice in the courts. Beryl, is there anything you want to add? I think that um, I just want to uplift what David has been saying about the um, preparation or the response that civilians have to this type of incident. You know, law enforcement plays a really important role in our communities, but um, you know, at, at Syracuse Police Department, at least, there were constraints around how uh, officers could be disciplined for crashes that were found to be their fault. And um, maybe David wants to speak a bit more about the disciplinary schedule that had been the framework for discipline when there were um, were accidents. Um, and I think it's sort of a question of investigating what is fair um, and sort of laying out for our communities what is fair um, when it comes to this type of interaction. In a lot of cases, civilians are just sort of minding their own business and they're not trying to get in the way of, of law enforcement responding to their jobs. But in some cases, there is this collision and there are ongoing costs to them. And in that moment, they are not necessarily prepared to be asking questions of law enforcement, to be sort of going through and ensuring that all of the materials that they would want to maybe have included in that initial uh, incident file, um, they maybe aren't sure that they're, they're there. They don't know how to sort of say, you know, are there photos being taken? Are there witnesses being asked about what happened? Um, and so part of what we're trying to do with this investigation is provide some of this additional context about how some of these decisions are made so that when civilians do find themselves in these positions, they can be better informed about how they can be navigating it because it can be incredibly intimidating to be dealing with law enforcement or to be trying to advocate for one's own rights uh, when facing the government in general. I definitely do want to get into the discipline, but before I do, I just have a, a few other follow-up questions. Beryl, what are you seeing in Rochester and Monroe County? So we are seeing, um, you know, very similar trends in a lot of the um, sort of larger New York cities, including Rochester and in Monroe County. In Monroe County, we have asked the Sheriff's Department for their comparable records on um, police car crashes. And they did call us last week and say that they would be providing those materials, although we don't have any of those yet. In uh, Rochester, we have received um, sort of a, an outline of some of uh, the numbers and the costs associated with um, car crashes. You know, it still ends up being hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in costs associated with these types of crashes just in terms of the damage to the vehicles and this isn't including any of the costs to um, the civilians who might have been involved or um, you know buildings or some of the other uh, costs that that occur when a crash happens uh, roughly we still have some analysis to do on on the numbers that we have but you know it does seem like uh, roughly half um, of, of the crashes that occur, the uh, police department uh, acknowledges were avoidable. And uh, we're sort of still digging down into sort of why these crashes are, are happening. But we are seeing this trend where it is a, you know, over a, a decade, it ends up costing, you know, more than a million dollars to address just vehicle costs. Um, and that doesn't really address uh, some of the other additional costs that are associated with these events. 
That's Barra Lipton, police discipline data coordinator for the USA Today Network, New York. Perhaps one of the biggest questions, if not the biggest question, David, why are police crashing so many vehicles? David Robinson, what do you say about that? Sure. <clears throat> yeah, there's there's a lot of aspects to that to that question. I mean, when you, when you look at it uh, uh, from the data analysis and, and, and to, to kind of elaborate a little bit on what Beryl was talking about as far as the, the records, you know, the details are really important in this and, and the ability to a- analyze all the different aspects of, of these crashes, what causes them, their training that's involved, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, how experienced the officer is, all, all the different things, the, the, the street design, that's really crucial. And when you're trying to analyze kind of what's causing these crashes. But I mean, what we found thus far in looking at especially those detailed records that we were able to obtain for Syracuse is, you know, there's there's different buckets that you can put some of these crashes in. Some of them are kind of those everyday careless driving mistakes that uh, that a lot of people go into and police themselves. You know, we'll talk about how many miles they drive. You know, the, part of their job is being behind the wheel and, and on the beat and out there protecting the community. So they're up behind the wheel a lot. And, you know, they're, they're susceptible to, to everyday driving mistakes. But some of that is kind of carelessness or, or negligence or, or, as you pointed out in the introduction, this this kind of false narrative somewhat in, in law enforcement of the idea that it's an unavoidable kind of uh, um, collateral uh, consequence of, of the job. You know, it's part of the job is you're going to be behind the wheel and there's going to be mistakes. But I think, you know, the other aspect of it is is the high risk emergency response crashes where there's there's really the the highest potential for catastrophic injuries and, and death and all the different terrible consequences that come outcomes that come from that. And that gets into the, uh, um, the emergency driving kind of decision making and all the training that goes into that and, and really the lack thereof in some cases. And, and that gets into the idea of decision making as far as policies on high speed pursuits and putting caps on how high, how fast drivers can drive, how fast the police can drive, you know, putting caps on, you know, when to actually, you know, when to actually, um, go after a, a criminal in a high-speed pursuit, you know, one to call, call that off. You know, it gets into the policies as far as how they interact with the, with the intersections and all those different kind of detailed things are really important in trying to unwrap <clears throat> what goes into this as far as uh, the causes and potential solutions uh, to the police crashes. So I, I think, you know, when you look at our, our reporting on the training end of it, you know, you talk to the people, we went out and observed a, a police academy's driver training a session uh, in the Southern tier. And, uh, you know, and the, those instructors point out that, you know, that there's there's just so much more time needed for these officers, especially the young uh, cadets to, to get behind the wheel and, and to experience the adrenaline rush and, and to experience, you know, how, how split second decisions when you're, um, you know, responding in, in urgency and responding at speed are, are so crucial to avoiding crashes in those, those high risk scenarios. So I think, you know, it's all, it's all part of you know, this big ball of, of, you know, why there's hundreds of crashes. And I think you can chip away at different levels of it to try and to try and reduce those crashes. And I think they're, they're also not, not even getting into the uh, aspect of the discipline uh, scale that we're talking about to, to give a little detail from, from what Barry was talking about is that, you know, the, the, the discipline scale in, in Syracuse, for example, is, is based on damage to the, the, the cop car. So basically, you know, the, the discipline is up to the, the most severe penalty being a seven days furlough, a seven days pay that you wouldn't receive as a cop. So if you damage the car, wreck it, total it, the worst you can face is a seven day penalty under this union scale. They don't really factor in, you know, whether some civilian was really severely injured or killed, you know, it's all by contract. And the police chief, as he pointed out, you know, was trying to fight to push for, for more discipline so that it would be more of a deterrent to, to pay more attention to the policies, to pay more attention to the kind of everyday driving mistakes, to make sure that, uh, that officers kind of make that cultural shift that, that 
you know, experts, especially at federal research level, point out is, is necessary to, to reduce crashes, to reduce injuries when it comes to the police officers themselves and the civilians. Let's stick with the topic of the discipline for just a moment. It strikes me as quite telling that as a result of these accidents, we're looking at repair bills hitting the $28,000 to $30,000 mark while the officers might be off duty for just a couple of days. And that's not even touching on what the civilian involved in the crash or their car went through. So when we talk about this lack of discipline, pointing to these very solid numbers gives us a real sense of the crash impact. So I want to stick with this subject about the repair costs to vehicles and the discipline tied to them. The disciplinary actions, they seem relatively minor, like you said, often just a few furlough days. How do these financial figures reflect on the department's approach to accountability, David? And what message does this send about the value placed on public safety and fiscal responsibility? Yeah, you know, as as the, the chief pointed out in his his um his response to our questioning, was that it was it was a contractual thing that lost out to priority to other uh, other talking points uh, during his forty years in, in the department as he kind of worked his way up to being uh, becoming chief in twenty twenty two, and uh, you know it, it seems you know it seems that there there's part of it is is a discussion where it, it kind of was something that uh, would be discussed every once in a while but uh, not reached the level of actually. Um, the priority of making changes in those union contracts. So basically it was just an unchanged discipline scale that, that stayed in the books and, and a lot of the departments kind of would, would prioritize other, other uh, things when they would go forward. So I, I think, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to uh, kind of making those types of changes, I think it takes this type of, this type of focus in a, in a community discussion to, to kind of spotlight the importance of it. I think it's the idea of, of making clear uh, you know how, how this impacts, and I think officers themselves could could be part of that discussion too. When when there's officers who are getting hurt themselves, and and should could benefit from more training and, and remedial training after any type of mistakes. You know, I think I think that's part of it is is the idea of of having an open discussion around what's the best way to to incorporate discipline into the discussion of improving driving safety. You know, we we pointed out there was a um, there was an example in Las Vegas in the Las Vegas Metro Department. Uh, police department that had these really high profile fatal crashes involving police officers uh, back to back to back, you know, three of them in a, in a very short period. And it was kind of a cultural thing where they were all speeding and driving recklessly because, they, you know, they just didn't really take driving safety seriously. They, they felt like, uh, you know, firearm safety and, and, and uh, you know, the, the idea of, of, uh, of putting yourself at risk in, in violent crime and fighting it on the streets was more important than kind of the, you know, the, the, the daily grind of making important decisions around driving safely and, and having those types of cultural shifts within a department. And, uh, you know, they, they incorporated this, some of these things we were talking about as far as those policy changes to, to, to pursuit, to speed caps, to uh, annual training uh, for driving, especially emergency response um, techniques. And they saw statistical reductions in crashes. They, they saw, you know, 14% reduction in crashes, 31% reduction in, in injuries. And, you know, that's that's evidence backed solutions that can be applied, you know, at a, at a local level when it comes to police departments. And I think, you know, it's the idea of having the the, um, you know, the motivation and the incentive for the police departments and the unions to have those conversations to incorporate discipline into that so that officers know how serious that they're all going to be taking this. Do you think that similar policies could be effective in cities like Rochester or Syracuse as as what we saw in Las Vegas? Are there steps 
being taken to adopt such approaches? To, to some extent, you know, as we reported in Syracuse, they, they had taken some of those early steps, uh, you know, in 2021, I think it was, maybe 2022 uh, into, they, they, had, they had instituted annual uh, driver training, for example. And for years, for decade, or the decade prior, as we were looking at all these crashes piling up and all these officers who were staying behind the wheel after these crashes and potentially not receiving this kind of remedial uh, uh, training after a crash that, that uh, you know, these federal studies proved are, are so crucial, you know, they, they said, finally, <laughs> you know, the cost was getting too much. And, and, you know, they finally had the discussion and said, we can pay for it. You know, the city budget discussion uh, uh, unfolded and they, they instituted an annual training. Now, it's, it's the idea of sticking to that, making sure that those costs are, are always going to be baked into the budget. You know, those are the types of things that kind of you have to keep an eye on over time, too, to make sure that they don't go by the wayside. But, uh, you know, I think as far as the, the actual discipline discussion, I think that's ongoing there. As I said, they, they made uh, uh, the one kind of a, a example case during our reporting of this. But uh, you know, that's another one where it's, it's you know, it's, it's keeping an eye on this as an issue, you know, over the long term is where I think the, the big impact is going to be is, is the idea of, of making sure that everyone um, who, who's involved in it is, is committed to it over time. That was David Robinson, investigative reporter for the USA Today Network, New York. We are also joined today by Beryl Lipton, the police discipline data coordinator for the USA Today Network, New York. And we're about to take a short break. But when we return, we'll continue our critical discussion on the USA Today Network's investigation into police vehicle crashes in New York State. So stay tuned as we unpack the impact on civilians and the conversation around law enforcement accountability. More to come after the break. I'm Megan Mack. Coming up in our second hour, we revisit a recent conversation about climate change. In her new book, data scientist Hanna Ritchie argues that some of the prognosticating about climate change is too gloom and doom, and that we can, in fact, be the first generation to ensure a sustainable future. Our guests are climate activists who weigh in on her arguments and offer their own. That's next on Connections. If you're just tuning in, I'm Jasmine Singer, in for Evan Dawson. On today's show, we're delving into the alarming rate of police vehicle crashes across New York State. We're discussing the comprehensive investigative report by the USA Today Network that sheds light on the dire consequences that these incidents have on civilians and the strikingly infrequent disciplinary actions that follow for the officers involved. What does this mean for accountability in law enforcement and how can we foster change? Joining us to discuss this today are David Robinson, investigative reporter for the USA Today Network New York, and Beryl Limpton, police discipline data coordinator for the USA Today Network New York. And listeners, we're going to want to hear from you too. So if you have a question for any of my guests, please call in 844-295-TALK. That's 844-295-8255. If you're local, you can also call 263-9994 or email us at connections at wxxi.org. All right, let's jump back in. We were starting to talk about discipline a bit. Why does it seem that discipline is tied to how much police vehicles have been damaged? Why Why does harm to a civilian not come into play? Whoever wants to take that, Beryl or David, either of you. I can, I can uh, jump in and take it first and, and let Beryl run with it. Uh, I, I think, you know, I think as I pointed out, you know, some of this is a, a union negotiation issue. And, and so that's, that's something that's, uh, you know, going to be part of con- contractual debates and, and 
you know, whether it's the police administration and the union uh, coming to a different understanding of it based on, you know, concerns around these costs, whether it's the, the injuries to officers themselves or making sure that they're protected or, or the cost to the, uh, the department and trying to, to fix the vehicles and maintain the vehicles. You know, I think that's one aspect of it. But, but you know, it's, it's, the, it's the, uh, the idea of also the, the investigations themselves, I think, are a part of that discussion, too. It's, it's you know, as, as our reporting pointed out in Syracuse, you know, there were 700, uh, around 700 cases of police-involved crashes that resulted in no discipline. And, and part of that process is kind of an internal review where they try and determine fault. And, you know, that's part of the questions around police investigating police, the idea of potential conflicts of interest and, and the, the crash reconstruction process that goes into that. And that, that's a whole other aspect of the discussion of, of kind of the training that goes into these, police, these specially trained uh, um, officers who handle the, the actual crash reconstruction reports and whether that's done, you know, how detailed that is, you know, is, is all part of the discussion of, of how you can apply discipline in a different scale that would be beyond the the actual damage to the cars you'd have to have kind of solid independent investigations to, to have the discussion around the idea of, of changing a discipline scale to incorporate you know civilian injuries things of that nature because that's that's where you get into the 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 kind of beyond the the the, the concrete numbers of the the cost to repair the vehicles and maintain the vehicles that are damaged from the cops perspective it's the idea of kind of when you have to try and incorporate impact of civilian and civilian injuries and civilian vehicles, you know, that's when you get into the kind of, you know, they'll, they'll make the argument that that's something that's handled in the courts and, 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 and that's something that, you know, potentially is, is more difficult to incorporate into a discipline scale. So I, th I think that's all part of the discussion going forward is, is trying, trying to have the best data and the best uh, analysis of data and the best understanding of, of the investigatory process to, to have a discussion to kind of reform the discipline scales and to have a different uh, approach to discipline so that that's part of the discussion to help reduce crashes. Beryl, do you want to add to that? I'd emphasize too that um, this, there maybe are some situations, right, where there isn't a civilian involved and we've seen in the data that there is no, a small percentage of accidents where an officer is, you know, backing out of a parking spot and runs into a stationary object, and maybe there isn't a civilian involved. But there is this inadequacy of applying that type of isolated incident and that type of disciplinary structure to incidents where there are other people involved. And in, in those cases where there are other people involved, right, the, the costs to the car are inadequate to cover all costs, as, as we've discussed. But sometimes the costs that continue to accrue for the police department and the taxpayer are those associated with trying to fight civilians who, for good reason, find that it is unfair that they are now held um, you know, they're now holding all of the consequences of, of this situation. And so the costs really uh, captured in that disciplinary scale um, in those cases really do not cover really the entirety of the cost to the department even. It is really just the cost of the, um, to the vehicle. And I, I can jump back in for, for one more sure. element of discussion that yeah. I didn't touch on there is, is the idea of repeat offenders you know the elevated the idea of having an elevated discipline scale for for the worst drivers and, and you know as we uncovered in syracuse you know there's there's um you know there's, there's a lot of officers who had to crash their vehicles quite a bit you know there was there was a, a close to 70 officers who had multiple crashes on their records during the 10 years that we looked at and some of them as many as five um crashes 
on their track record. And it's the idea of incorporating that into the discipline scale of, of you know, all the way up to, to losing the job or, you know, at, at the very least getting removed from, from driving behind the wheel. If, if you've been deemed a, an unsafe driver and someone who doesn't learn from any lessons or whatever that discussion might unfold, it, it's the idea of kind of incorporating, you know, making sure that there's, there's a, a the, the administration of a police department's keeping an eye on, on officers to make sure that they just, they are piling up uh, crashes and feeling that they won't, they won't face any severe consequences. So I think that's part of a crucial aspect of the discussion too, going forward. We have an email from Manny. Manny says, multiple studies show that multimedia distractions while driving pose a significant risk. I challenge all of us next time we see a police car on the road to pay attention to where their eyes are. It's quite amazing because more than 90% of the time they're looking away from the road and towards their in-car computer. All their jobs, etc., are communicated while on the screen. And I have been, just as a matter of curiosity, doing this for years. And from my own anecdotal evidence, more often than not, officers are not looking at the road. In addition, there are explicit exceptions that allow police officers to use their cell phones while driving. And another interesting thing to look into, I've been personally passed by many police officers on the highway who are talking on their cell phone. Manny brings up an an interesting point. Are, Are there any existing policies that regulate or limit the use? Use of such devices to minimize distraction-related risks, David. Sure. So, yeah, uh, the the um, uh, in reporting on this, uh, I, I did uh, do uh, I did ride along in, in a police vehicle during the training observation. So I did see all the different tech that gets in there, and I mean a lot of that is part of policing, and it make what what makes their job unique and, and uniquely difficult is is the idea of responding to a, a, an emergency call, a nine one one call, and part of that is being prepared somewhat for what you're going to encounter when you get there as a police officer. So, so part of that is the police tech itself. And as, as technology has improved over time, they've incorporated more and more kind of computer screens and, and uh, you know, dispatch equipment into cop, into cop cars. And, and that distracted driving element is something that I think at the federal level, especially they're doing research on and they're trying to do some, some uh, evidence-based approaches to, to minimizing some of those distracted driving things. But I think when you talk about kind of use of a cell phone and, you know, that was like, for example, in the Las Vegas Metro PD, that was one of the officers was on the phone with a, a girlfriend, you know, he's leaving his duty for the day and he was doing a hundred miles per hour and crashed, you know, so I think distracted driving is one thing when you're doing something that's unpolice related, but when you're, when you're in a emergency, emergency response scenario, you know, there, there's, there's, there's aspects of the job that they require them to have kind of process data quickly. And so I think there's, you know, there's the different tech that, I, that, to my understanding, that's being discussed that, that could minimize the distraction for police. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that's an ongoing discussion from the law enforcement angle to, to make sure that the police are best prepared when they're going into an emergency scenario, when they have the best dispatch data. They know kind of, you know, for example, like how many people are, are on the scene or what type of risks or, or firearm related or whatever it may be, you know, so they're able to have the best information in a quick, quickly, uh, easily digestible way. You know, but but doing that in a way where it's not making making it so difficult to drive that they're crashing their vehicle. You know, I think they I think they have some in, in talking with some of the experts and talking with some of the officers. It's you know, you can't you can't help anyone if you don't get to the scene. Basically, yeah. I'm summarizing it to some, some extent, but I think that's part of the approach is that they have to prioritize. You, know, you have to get there to help people. Thank you, David Robinson. Beryl Lipton, Police Discipline Data Coordinator for the USA Today Network, New York. Who is doing the investigating of the crashes? Is there a conflict of interest there? 
Well, in some cases, it is other um, officers within the department. Um, And I think David can speak to this uh, more thoroughly. But there is an issue, I think, in the initial response to uh, some of these crashes, right? Because law enforcement is, uh, you know, when a civilian has a crash with another civilian, uh, law enforcement is generally responsible for some level of evidence collection. And if that evidence collection isn't happening in a situation where law enforcement is involved, then I think that is a clear conflict of interest. And the lack of that evidence collection can make it incredibly difficult later on when a case is trying to be formed around some of these incidents to actually bring that case forward. And um, I believe David talked to attorneys who had very clearly said, right, like we cannot help people who are in these situations because some of that initial evidentiary uh, collection did not occur. And we just don't have that much uh, that we can can say about this particular situation, even though it does seem clearly as though the officer was at fault. David, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, <clears throat> as, I, as I mentioned there, you know, there's specialized jobs that are within departments, you know, that, that are that are that are uh, designed to, to handle this and to try and minimize uh, kind of conflict of interest, you know, and they try to insulate these crash reconstruction experts within a department. But there's concerns around the lack of uh, standards and uniformity when it comes to their training and their certification process. There's no there's there's no real standard at the state or federal level, for that matter, uh, on the uh, the idea of a crash reconstructionist getting a, a certain high level of training and expertise that goes into it. So you can encounter crash reconstructionists on a very broad scale of, of experience and, and technical expertise that goes into this. When you look at a crash reconstruction port, report, for example, like we did for analyzing a lot of these court battles, was, was uh, you know, there's there's a lot of technical uh, kind of technical uh, expertise that goes into producing those reports. And so, you know, if you want the best trained and, and the most experienced person who's, who's going to be investigating this, it, it, when it, when, especially from the civilian perspective, uh, you know, so, so it's, it's questions around actually people who are doing this job, but then you remove that uh, person from kind of the regular duties of, of the job. And I think it's, that comes into the idea of, you know, how big a department is and, and, you know, it, you know, for smaller departments, for example, they might rely on the state police to come in. They have a, the state police have an actual team of reconstructionists and they can come in and give you that, that, layer of separation that addresses that conflict of interest concern to some extent. And as, as we talked to the, uh, the national group that does an accreditation uh, uh, for, for crash reconstructionists, the vice chairman of that group, you know, it's, it's a, a group that was started because there was no lack of standard and, and they want to have this gold standard for people who, who actually are doing these jobs. And, and in the Chicago area where he works, you know, he, he's part of a regional team that goes in and handles any uh, police involved crashes to make sure that they even remove even the, uh, the, potential for conflict of interest. So I think that's all part of the discussion too, mm. is, is, you know, the people who are actually doing this job to make sure that they're best trained and, and as most independent minded as possible. Well, let's check in with some of our callers. Uh, we have Hoover in Pittsburgh on the line. Hoover, thanks so much for calling Connections. What's your question? One of my favorite programs, and uh, it really makes my day when I turn on and you've got some interesting reporters with an interesting <laughs> topic like this. So um, I'm calling in because I have experience in this. Before I retired, um, I was a risk manager and a safety control officer for a large county of over half a million people with a, uh, uh, I'm not going to name the county, but it's in upstate New York. And there were uh, over 300 or more uh, police officers. And we had a bi-monthly safety committee meeting 
Um, we met with the uh, mate, the administrative major, who was one of the top three officers in the department. Um, we met the department attorney. And uh, in terms of labor, uh, I'll talk about labor in a second. But uh, I was a civilian, but I worked for the organization, but I was a risk manager. And I look at things through an insurance uh, documentation perspective and uh, liability issue issues. So um, I can guarantee the public that when there was a crash that came up on our agenda and the uh, lieutenants who were in charge of the road patrols, they were required to put uh, certain types of accidents that involve certain types of uh, collisions and certain monetary values of repair. They were required to put those on the agenda. And we met every other month or more frequently if needed, but usually we didn't. And the meetings lasted for hours. Um, there was exceptional scrutiny. The deputy or the police officer involved was there. Um, they had a representative. And if there was discipline, it had to be done according to the, either the union contract or the tradition of the department, depending on whether there was a, in your department, if there was a uh, union contract or not, most of them had union contracts. So uh, I do want to tell the public and these two uh, reporters that this stuff is not taken lightly. I was in a number of these meetings over a period of years. I never saw a hood and a wink going on in these meetings. It was always, if anything, it was as severe as I would have expected it to be. Um, and sometimes when it was severe accident, uh, we were ensuring that there was, um, the evidence was collected. These immediate supervisors, their uh, rear end was on the line if they came in without investigation, immediate investigation evidence. So there was a high level of accountability. Um, that doesn't mean that officers will not get in collisions because sometimes they do. And they are trained to in invasive driving procedures um, as a uh, parent, grandparent, and a, a citizen, I'm comfortable that they're doing what they can, but they're not perfect, and there will be crashes. So, you know, it's incumbent upon every driver to make sure they understand that uh, they better look out going through intersections and look for red lights and things like that because they will be coming. Um, and it is not it, it is not uncommon for injuries to occur. So the liability for this is depending on the circumstances and the state law uh, regarding uh, police officers and how they use the highways, et cetera. And there will be internal review, a comprehensive review by responsible senior officers in matters like this. So that's what I wanted to ask. Uh, any questions? Thank you so much for that information. It's great to have your perspective. Uh, Beryl, do you have any response to Hoover? Well, I just I really appreciate uh, Hoover's perspective on this, and and I appreciate knowing that within the county in which he was working, that there did seem to be an internal review process. And I, I think though that we see variation sort of across departments, across union contracts, and even with that internal review process, it isn't necessarily going to turn out for the people who are involved that there's much consolation in that. And so I really appreciate knowing in that particular town that there is, uh, or in that particular county, that there is a process for this and that he was involved in it and saw that. 
Um, but I think that part of the statewide look that we are taking is to try to, you know, better understand what are what are the blockers in certain areas and what kind of conversation does there need to be? What kind of evolution does there need to be? What best practices already exist for dealing with these types of situations? And maybe that's a county uh, where there are things to be learned. Let's go to Keith in Victor. Keith, thank you so much for calling Connections today. Uh, what's your question? Um, th- there are, when you see a cop on the phone, don't assume he's talking to a, a family member about the upcoming birthday party. A, a lot of times law enforcement will use their phones to contact other uh, patrolmen to ask a question about a certain perpetrator or something like that. And then a lot of times you will, um, you won't, if you don't want to broadcast something from your radio to the 911 center, because there are people who listen to police scanners. And if you don't want the general public who's listening to police scanners, you may just call the 911 center and whatever your concern is, have it addressed that way. Now, I'm sure just like, Real people, they abuse the situation, too. But don't assume that they're always talking, uh, you know, to shoot in the breeze. That's all. Oh, well, thank you so much for that perspective. I appreciate it. David, do you have any responses to that? David Robinson, the investigative reporter for the USA Today Network New York. Sure. I, I, like, I appreciate the call. And, and uh, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, observation when it comes to this. And you know, everybody who's on the road sees police and they try to, you know, they try to make their own assumptions. And I think it's it's all part of the conversation of, of especially the police tech when it comes to, you know, what they need to do the job. I think that's a part, an important part of this discussion going forward. And I think that, um, like I said, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of focus on that, uh, on that and the, the research that's being done now to try and make sure that uh, they have the, the tools to do their job, but to do it in a way that doesn't distract them behind the wheel. Thank you for that, David. What are we seeing in terms of next steps here? I know it's an ongoing investigation. I know it's an ongoing dialogue, especially here in Rochester and Monroe County, where the majority of our listeners are. If you could look into your crystal ball uh, for both of you, David and Beryl, what would you see? We'll start with you, David, if you don't mind. Sure. So um. You know, as, as uh, Barrel pointed out, I, I think it's it's going to be a, a, an understanding evolution as, as the records come in and we're able to kind of broaden out the findings to make sure that the, the patterns and trends that we're finding uh, as we go, you know, are, are addressed in a systemic way that we can look at it in, in, in policy and we can look at it in, in lawmaking and, and do it in a way that uh, that involves all the different parties that are, that are impacted by this issue. And, and make sure that there's an open conversation in, in the public that incorporates, you know, civilians especially, I think, are, are a missing part in a lot of these discussions. And I think to get uh, the public involved in that is really crucial going forward. So I think as the reporting comes together, as more records are, are disclosed, as we're able to kind of have an independent look at this issue in different communities and to apply these, these uh, principles that we're finding, these findings that we're identifying in the early uh, data analysis, you know, going forward, I think the more information out there, the better, the better the transparency, you know, the, the ability to, to improve accountability, to improve outcomes, to keep people safer, to keep police safer is just going to is, the momentum is going to build over time. I think that that's my uh, crystal ball prediction here going forward. And Beryl, I'd love your prediction, too. 
Well, we are going to continue to file and follow up on freedom of information law requests. So we have asked um, a lot of police departments for similar materials, and it's a long process of negotiation to get some of those materials, in part because some of those departments do have a lot of crashes that have happened in the last 10 years, and there is a lot of work that goes into gathering and reviewing and releasing those records. Um, on their department's end, and then on our end in terms of turning those documents into data that we can then analyze and follow up on. So that'll be a very big part of our process coming up. Um, of course, we are always interested in hearing from the public uh, about their experiences and even from the callers that we've heard from today, right? People have had experiences uh, with this one way or another. And uh, as we move forward, we are intending to host a number of events in communities across uh, New York State to sort of better localize the data that we've seen, contextualize it in that local environment, and have some of these conversations because there are lots of reasons, right, sometimes negligence, sometimes deer, sometimes other things that cause these crashes, and it's sort of part of the ongoing project to find policies that are working for communities and having that transparency on what on which to build those conversations. And Beryl, how can people get involved if they've actually been hit by a police vehicle? Um, so if they find that, uh, uh, the story, uh, there's a form there that they would be able to use. They can also email us. Maybe David um, wants to provide his email uh, address uh, directly, um, or we have an email address, uh, policerecords at gannett.com that they could email. David, do you want to mention your email address as well? Sure. They can email me directly at drobinson at gannett.com, G-A-N-N-E-T-T.com. We got an anonymous email that I'd love to read. As a police officer, I'm surprised there aren't even more crashes. If anyone has an opportunity to go along on a, a ride, I highly recommend it. The amount of technology we are constantly interfacing with while driving is absolutely staggering. It simply is an inherent part of the job. Instead of punishment, we need to focus on better training. We have just about um, a minute, a minute and a half left. David, do you have a response to this police officer who sent this email? Yeah, I really appreciate the email. And, and uh, you know, the, the main story that we're talking about here, most of the time we spent today is one aspect of this. But uh, like I said, we observed the training uh, as a police academy. Um, it was in a, 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 a air, airport uh, runway that they had converted into the training. And, and in talking with a lot of those officers there, they had similar concerns. It's the idea of, of being best prepared to avoid these kind of risks of the job and, and all the different uh, distractions and, and all the different urgency that goes into responding to emergency situations. And so I think, you know, that's that's going to be really key going forward is is to, to make sure that police are best equipped and best trained mm. to, to make sure that they're driving safely. David Robinson, investigative reporter for the USA Today Network, New York, and Beryl Lipton, police discipline data coordinator for the USA Today Network, New York. Thank you both so very much for joining us today on Connections. It's such an important conversation. And we're reminded that the solutions are as multifaceted as the problem itself. The experiences shared, the data examined today highlight a clear need for systemic change. So we'll keep our eyes on how these challenges are addressed moving forward and how policies evolve to ensure accountability and safety on our roads. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thanks for connecting.